Welcome to This Week in Medicine, your filtered medical journal summary. Looking to stay up to date with the latest medical research but short on time? This Week in Medicine has you covered. Our AI-generated podcast provides you with a convenient, on-the-go solution to keep you informed about the most significant developments in the medicine field. We understand that your time is valuable, so we've done the hard work for you. Each episode offers a filtered and concentrated summary of key journal articles, allowing you to stay informed without the need to sift through pages of research papers. With This Week in Medicine, listening is faster than reading, and you can consume valuable medical knowledge while commuting, exercising, or during your daily routine. The information provided in this podcast is for general informational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The podcast is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Hi, this week in medicine, we will be discussing recently published articles. First we will be discussing articles in New England Journal of Medicine. Severe Hyponatremia Correction, Mortality, and Central Pontine Myelinolysis. Background. In clinical practice, Sodium correction rates are frequently limited in patients with severe hyponatremia to prevent neurologic complications. The implications of correction rates on overall mortality and length of hospital stay are unclear. Methods In this multicenter observational study, we evaluated the association of sodium correction rates with mortality, length of stay, and central pontine myelinolysis, CPM, in patients hospitalized with severe hyponatremia. Admission serum sodium level less than 120 MEQ L. Results. The cohort included 3,274 patients. A correction rate of less than 6 MEQ L 24 hours was observed in 38%, 6 to 10 MEQ L 24 hours was observed in 29%, and greater than 10 MEQ L 24 hours was observed in 33%. Compared with 6 to 10 MEQ L 24 hours, a correction rate of less than 6 MEQ L 24 hours exhibited higher in hospital mortality in multivariable adjusted and propensity score weighted analyses. Compared with 6 to 10 MEQ L 24 hours, a correction rate of greater than 10 MEQ L 24 hours was associated with lower in hospital mortality and shorter length of stay in multivariable analyses. Seven patients with CPM were identified, with five of seven developing CPM despite a sodium correction rate of less than or equal to 8 MEQ L 24 hours. Six of seven patients who developed CPM had alcohol use disorder, malnutrition, hypokalemia, or hypophosphatemia. Conclusions Limiting the sodium correction rate was associated with higher mortality and longer length of stay. Whether the sodium correction rate influences neurologic complications needs further evaluation. Actionable genotypes and their association with lifespan in Iceland. Background. In 2021, the American College of Medical Genetics and Genomics, ACMG, recommended reporting actionable genotypes in 73 genes associated with diseases for which preventive or therapeutic measures are available. Evaluations of the association of actionable genotypes in these genes with lifespan are currently lacking. Methods We assess the prevalence of coding and splice variants in genes on the ACMG Secondary Findings, version 3.0, ACMG SFV3.0, 
list in the genomes of 57,933 Icelanders. We assign pathogenicity to all reviewed variants using reported evidence in the ClinVar database, the frequency of variants, and their associations with disease to create a manually curated set of actionable genotypes, variants. We assess the relationship between these genotypes and lifespan and further examine the specific causes of death among carriers. Results Through manual curation of 4,405 sequence variants in the ACMG SFV 3.0 genes, we identified 235 actionable genotypes in 53 genes. Of the 57,933 participants, 2,306, 4.0%, carried at least one actionable genotype. We found shorter median survival among persons carrying actionable genotypes than among non-carriers. Specifically, we found that carrying an actionable genotype in a cancer gene was associated with survival that was three years shorter than that among non-carriers, with causes of death among carriers attributed primarily to cancer-related conditions. Furthermore, we found evidence of association between carrying an actionable genotype in certain genes in the cardiovascular disease group and a reduced lifespan. Conclusions On the basis of the ACMG SFV 3.0 guidelines, we found that approximately 1 in 25 Icelanders carried an actionable genotype and that carrying such a genotype was associated with a reduced lifespan. Trial of botulinum toxin for isolated or essential head tremor. Background. Local injections of botulinum toxin type A have been used to treat essential head tremor but have not been extensively studied in randomized trials. Methods. In a multi-center, double-blind, randomized trial, we assigned, in a one-to-one ratio, adult patients with essential or isolated head tremor to receive botulinum toxin type A or placebo. Botulinum toxin or placebo was injected under electromyographic guidance into each splenius capitis muscle on the day of randomization, day 0, and during week 12. The primary outcome was improvement by at least two points on the clinical global impression of change, CGI, scale at week 6 after the second injection, week 18 after randomization. The CGI scale was used to record the patient's assessment of the degree of improvement or worsening of head tremors since baseline, scores range from 3, very much improved, to minus 3, very much worse. Secondary outcomes included changes in tremor characteristics from baseline to weeks 6, 12, and 24. Results A total of 120 patients were enrolled, 3 patients were excluded during screening, and 117 patients were randomly assigned to receive botulinum toxin, 62 patients, or placebo, 55 patients, and were included in the intention-to-treat analysis. Twelve patients in the botulinum toxin group and two patients in the placebo group did not receive injections during week 12. The primary outcome, improvement by at least two points on the CGI scale at week 18, was met by 31% of the patients in the botulinum toxin group as compared with 9% of those in the placebo group, relative risk, 3.37, 95% confidence interval, 1.35 to 8.42. P equals 0.009. Analyses of secondary outcomes at 6 and 12 weeks but not at 24 weeks were generally supportive of the primary outcome analysis. Adverse events occurred in approximately half the patients in the botulinum toxin group and included head and neck pain, posterior cervical weakness, and dysphagia. Conclusions 
Injection of botulinum toxin into each splenius capitis muscle on day 0 and during week 12 was more effective than placebo in reducing the severity of isolated or essential head tremor at 18 weeks but not at 24 weeks, when the effects of injection might be expected to wane, and was associated with adverse events. Decolonization in nursing homes to prevent infection and hospitalization. Background. Nursing home residents are at high risk for infection, hospitalization, and colonization with multidrug-resistant organisms. Methods. We performed a cluster randomized trial of universal decolonization as compared with routine care bathing in nursing homes. The trial included an 18-month baseline period and an 18-month intervention period. Decolonization entailed the use of chlorhexidine for all routine bathing and showering and administration of nasal povidone iodine twice daily for the first five days after admission and then twice daily for five days every other week. The primary outcome was transferred to a hospital due to infection. The secondary outcome was transferred to a hospital for any reason. An intention to treat, as assigned, difference in differences analysis was performed for each outcome with the use of generalized linear mixed models to compare the intervention period with the baseline period across trial groups. Results Data were obtained from 28 nursing homes with a total of 28,956 residents. Among the transfers to a hospital in the routine care group, 62.2%, the mean across facilities, were due to infection during the baseline period and 62.6% were due to infection during the intervention period, risk ratio, 1.00, 95% confidence interval, C, 0.96 to 1.04. The corresponding values in the decolonization group were 62.9% and 52.2%, risk ratio, 0.83, 95% C, 0.79 to 0.88, for a difference in risk ratio, as compared with routine care, of 16.6%, 95% C, 11.0 to 21.8, P less than 0.001. Among the discharges from the nursing home in the routine care group, transfer to a hospital for any reason accounted for 36.6% during the baseline period and for 39.2% during the intervention period, risk ratio, 1.08, 95% C, 1.04 to 1.12. The corresponding values in the decolonization group were 35.5% and 32.4%, risk ratio, 0.92, 95% C, 0.88 to 0.96, for a difference in risk ratio, as compared with routine care, of 14.6%, 95% C, 9.7 to 19.2. The number needed to treat was 9.7 to prevent one infection-related hospitalization and 8.9 to prevent one hospitalization for any reason. Conclusions In nursing homes, universal decolonization with chlorhexidine and nasal iodophore led to a significantly lower risk of transfer to a hospital due to infection than routine care. Nivolumab plus gemcitabine cisplatin in advanced urothelial carcinoma. Background No new agent has improved overall survival in patients with unresectable or metastatic urothelial carcinoma when added to first line cisplatin based chemotherapy. 
Methods. In this phase 3, multinational, open label trial, we randomly assigned patients with previously untreated unresectable or metastatic urothelial carcinoma either to receive intravenous nivolumab, at a dose of 360 mg, plus gemcitabine cisplatin, nivolumab combination, every 3 weeks for up to 6 cycles, followed by nivolumab, at a dose of 480 mg, every 4 weeks for a maximum of 2 years, or to receive gemcitabine cisplatin alone every 3 weeks for up to 6 cycles. The primary outcomes were overall and progression-free survival. The objective response and safety were exploratory outcomes. Results A total of 608 patients underwent randomization, 304 to each group. At a median follow-up of 33.6 months, overall survival was longer with nivolumab combination therapy than with gemcitabine cisplatin alone, hazard ratio for death, 0.78. 95% confidence interval, C, 0.63 to 0.96, T equals 0.02, the median survival was 21.7 months, 95% C, 18.6 to 26.4, as compared with 18.9 months, 95% C, 14.7 to 22.4, respectively. Progression-free survival was also longer with nivolumab combination therapy than with gemcitabine cisplatin alone, Hazard ratio for progression or death, 0.72, 95% C, 0.59-0.88, P equals 0.001. The median progression-free survival was 7.9 months and 7.6 months, respectively. At 12 months, progression-free survival was 34.2% and 21.8%, respectively. The overall objective response was 57.6%, complete response, 21.7%, with nivolumab combination therapy at 43.1%, complete response, 11.8%, with gemcitabine cisplatin alone. The median duration of complete response was 37.1 months with nivolumab combination therapy and 13.2 months with gemcitabine cisplatin alone. Grade 3 or higher adverse events occurred in 61.8% and 51.7% of the patients, respectively. Conclusions Combination therapy with nivolumab plus gemcitabine cisplatin resulted in significantly better outcomes in patients with previously untreated advanced urothelial carcinoma than gemcitabine cisplatin alone. Next article from Journal of American Medical Association. Automated opt-out versus opt-in patient outreach strategies for breast cancer screening. A randomized clinical trial objective to evaluate the effect on breast cancer screening of an opt-out automatic mammography referral strategy compared with an opt-in automated telephone message strategy. Design, setting, and participants This pragmatic randomized clinical trial was conducted from April 2022 to January 2023 at a single Veterans Affairs, VA, medical center. Participants were female veterans aged 45 to 75 years who were eligible for breast cancer screening and enrolled in VA primary care. Intervention veterans were randomized one-to-one to receive either an automatic mammography referral, opt-out arm, or an automated telephone call with an option for mammography referral, opt-in arm. Main outcomes and measures The primary outcome was completed mammography 100 days after outreach. 
Secondary outcomes were scheduled or completed mammography by 100 days after outreach and referrals canceled if mammography was not scheduled within 90 days. Both intention to treat analyzes and a restricted analysis were conducted. The restricted analysis excluded veterans who were unable to be reached by telephone, e.g., a non-working number, or who were found to be ineligible after randomization, e.g., medical record documentation of recent mammography. Results of 883 veterans due for mammography, mean, SD, age, 59.13, 8.24, years, 656, 74.3%, had received prior mammography, 442 were randomized to the opt-in group and 441 to the opt-out group. In the intention-to-treat analysis, there was no significant difference in the primary outcome of completed mammography at 100 days between the opt-out and opt-in groups, 67, 15.2%, versus 66, 14.9%, p equals 0.90, or the secondary outcome of completed or scheduled mammography, 84, 19%, versus 106, 24.0%, p equals 0.07. A higher number of referrals were canceled in the opt-out group compared with the opt-in group, 104, 23.6%, versus 24, 5.4%, p less than 0.001. The restricted analysis demonstrated similar results except more veterans completed or scheduled mammography within 100 days in the opt-out group compared with the opt-in group, 102 of 388, 26.3%, versus 80 of 415, 19.3%, p equals 0.02. Conclusions and relevance in this randomized clinical trial, an opt-out population-based breast cancer screening outreach approach compared with an opt-in approach did not result in a significant difference in mammography completion but did lead to substantially more canceled mammography referrals, increasing staff burden. Association of Gestational Diabetes with Subsequent Long-Term Risk of Mortality Objective to investigate the associations between gestational diabetes and long-term risks of total and cause-specific mortality. Design, setting, and participants This cohort study analyzed participants of the Nurses Health Study 2 who were followed for 30 years, 1989 to 2019. Participants included U.S. female nurses aged 25 to 42 years who reported at least one pregnancy, greater than or equal to six months, at 18 years or older across their reproductive lifespan. Data were analyzed from May 1, 2022, to May 25, 2023. Exposure gestational diabetes across the reproductive lifespan. Main outcomes and measures hazard ratios, HRs with 95% Cs, for total and cause-specific mortality were estimated by Cox proportional hazards regression models. Results a total of 91,426 PERS participants were included, with a mean, SD, age of 34.9, 4.7, years and a body mass index of 24.1, 4.7, at baseline. During a follow-up period of two 609,753 person years, 3,937 deaths were documented, including 255 deaths from cardiovascular disease and 1,397 from cancer. Participants with a history of gestational diabetes had a higher crude mortality rate than those without a history of gestational diabetes, 1.74 versus 1.49 per 1,000 person years, 
absolute difference equals 0.25 per 1,000 person years. The corresponding HR for total mortality was 1.28, 95% C, 1.13-1.44, which did not materially change after additional adjustment for potential confounders and lifestyle factors during the reproductive lifespan, HR, 1.25, 95% C, 1.11-1.41. The association persisted regardless of the subsequent development of type 2 diabetes and was more robust among participants who adopted less healthy lifestyles, experienced gestational diabetes in two or more pregnancies, HR, 1.48, 95% C, 0.99-2.19, had gestational diabetes both in the initial and subsequent pregnancies, HR, 1.71, 95% C, 1.11-2.63, and concurrently reported hypertensive disorders in pregnancy, HR, 1.80, 95% C, 1.21-2.67, preterm birth, HR, 2.46, 95% C, 1.66-3.64, or low birth weight, HR, 2.11, 95% C, 1.21-3.68. Cause-specific mortality analyzes revealed that gestational diabetes was directly associated with the risk of mortality due to cardiovascular disease, HR, 1.59, 95% C, 1.03-2.47. Additionally, Gestational diabetes was inversely associated with cancer mortality, HR, 0.76, 95% C, 0.59-0.98. However, it was only evident among participants who later developed type 2 diabetes. Conclusions and relevance results of this cohort study suggest that participants who reported a history of gestational diabetes exhibited a small but elevated risk of subsequent mortality over 30 years. The findings emphasize the importance of considering gestational diabetes as a critical factor in later life mortality risk. Next article from Annals of Internal Medicine. Relationship between clinician language and the success of behavioral weight loss interventions. Background. International guidelines recommend that primary care clinicians recognize obesity and offer treatment opportunistically, but there is little evidence on how clinicians can discuss weight and offer treatment in ways that are well-received and effective. Objective To examine relationships between language used in the clinical visit and patient weight loss. Design Mixed Methods Cohort Study Setting 38 primary care clinics in England participating in the brief intervention for weight loss trial. Participants. 246 patients with obesity seen by 87 general practitioners randomly sampled from the intervention group of the randomized clinical trial. Measurements. Conversation analysis of recorded discussions between 246 patients with obesity and 87 clinicians regarding referral to a 12-week behavioral weight management program offered as part of the randomized clinical trial. Clinicians' interactional approaches were identified and their association with patient weight loss at 12 months, primary outcome, was examined. Secondary outcomes included patients' agreement to attend weight management, attendance, loss of 5% body weight actions taken to lose weight, and post-visit satisfaction. Results Three interactional approaches were identified on the basis of clinicians' linguistic and paralinguistic practices, 
creating a sense of referrals as good news related to the opportunity of the referral and equals 62, bad news, focusing on the harms of obesity, and equals 82, or neutral, and equals 102. Outcome data were missing from 57 participants, so weighted analyzes were done to adjust for missingness. Relative to neutral news, good news was associated with increased agreement to attend the program, adjusted risk difference, 0.25-95% C, 0.15 to 0.35, increased attendance, adjusted risk difference, 0.45-C, 0.34 to 0.56, and weight change, adjusted difference, minus 3.60, C, minus 6.58 to minus 0.62. There was no evidence of differences in mean weight change comparing bad and neutral news, and no evidence of differences in patient satisfaction across all three approaches. Limitations Data were audio only, so body language and nonverbal cues could not be assessed. There is potential for selection bias and residual confounding. Conclusion When raising the topic of excess weight in clinical visits, presenting weight loss treatment as a positive opportunity is associated with greater uptake of treatment and greater weight loss. Next article from Journal of Clinical Oncology. Adding ovarian suppression to tamoxifen for premenopausal women with hormone receptor-positive breast cancer after chemotherapy, an eight-year follow-up of the ASTRA trial. Purpose To determine the updated long-term outcomes of the addition of ovarian suppression to tamoxifen in young women with hormone-sensitive breast cancer who remain premenopausal or regain vaginal bleeding after chemotherapy, ASTRA, trial. Patients and Methods this study is a post-trial follow-up of the ASTRA trial, involving 1,483 premenopausal women younger than 45 years treated with definitive surgery after completing adjuvant or neoadjuvant chemotherapy for estrogen receptor-positive breast cancer. Patients were randomly assigned in a 1-to-1 ratio to complete 5 years of tamoxifen, TAM, alone, TAM only, or 5 years of TAM with ovarian function suppression, OFS, for 2 years, TAM plus OFS. The primary endpoint was disease-free survival, DFS, and the secondary endpoint was overall survival, OS. Results At 106.4 months of median follow-up, there was a continuous significant reduction in the DFS event rate in the TAM plus OFS group. The 8-year DFS rate was 85.4% in the TAM plus OFS group and 80.2% in the TAM-only group, hazard ratio, HR, 0.67. 95% C, 0.51 to 0.87. There were no significant differences in OS between the two groups. The OS rate was 96.5% in the TAM plus OFS group and 95.3% in the TAM only group, HR, 0.78, 95% C, 0.49 to 1.25. Conclusion Adding OFS for two years to adjuvant TAM with a longer follow-up resulted in consistent DFS benefits, suggesting that adding OFS to TAM should be considered for patients who remain in a premenopausal state or resume ovarian function after chemotherapy. Next article from Hepatology Efficacy and safety of on-demand vonoprazin versus placebo for non-erosive reflux disease. 
Background Non-erosive reflux disease, NERD, symptoms are often episodic, making on-demand treatment an attractive treatment approach. Aims We compared the efficacy and safety of on-demand vonoprazin versus placebo in patients with NERD. Methods Patients with NERD, defined as heartburn for greater than or equal to 6 months and for greater than or equal to 4-7 consecutive days with normal endoscopy, received once daily vonoprazin 20 mg during a 4-week run-in period. Patients without heartburn during the last 7 days and with greater than or equal to 80% study drug and diary compliance were randomized 1 to 1 colon 1 to 1 to vonoprazin 10, 20, 40 mg or placebo on demand for 6 weeks. The primary endpoint was the percentage of evaluable heartburn episodes completely relieved within 3H of on-demand dosing and sustained for 24H. Results Of 458 patients in the run-in period, 207 entered the on-demand period. In the vonoprazin 10 mg group, 56.0%, of evaluable heartburn episodes met the criteria for complete and sustained relief, 60.6%, 198,327, in the 20 mg group, and 70.0%, 226,323, in the 40 mg group, compared with 27.3%, 101,370, in the placebo group, p less than 0.0001 versus placebo for each vonoprazin group. By 1H post-dose, vonoprazin was associated with complete relief of significantly more heartburn episodes compared with placebo. No serious treatment emergent adverse events were reported. Conclusion On-demand vonoprazin may be a potential alternative to continued daily acid suppression therapy for the relief of episodic heartburn in patients with NERD. Next article from Clinical Gastroenterology and Hepatology. Development and Validation of the Veterans Affairs Eosinophilic Esophagitis Cohort. Background and Aims. Gaps remain in understanding the epidemiology of eosinophilic esophagitis, O. Our aim was to identify and validate a national cohort of individuals with O using Veterans Health Administration, VHA, data. Methods. We used two validation strategies to develop algorithms that identified adults with O between 1999 and 2020. The first validation strategy applied International Classification of Diseases, ICD, code algorithms to a base cohort of individuals who underwent esophagogastroduodenoscopy with esophageal biopsy specimens. The second applied ICD code algorithms to a base cohort of all individuals in the VHA. For each ICD algorithm applied, a random sample of candidate O cases and non-O controls were selected and the charts were reviewed manually by a blinded reviewer. Each algorithm was modified iteratively until the pre-specified diagnostic accuracy endpoint, 95% confidence lower bound for a positive predictive value, PPV, greater than 88%, was achieved. We compiled individuals from each strategy's maximum performance algorithm to construct the Veterans Affairs eosinophilic esophagitis cohort. Results. The maximum performance algorithm from the first validation strategy included two or more ICD code encounters for O separated by more than 30 days and achieved a 93.3% PPV, lower bound, 88.1%, for identifying true O cases. 
The maximum performance algorithm from the second validation strategy included four or more ICD code encounters for O in which two codes were separated by at least 30 days, and similarly achieved a 93.3% PPV, lower bound, 88.1%. Combining both strategies yielded 6,637 individuals, which comprised the Veterans Affairs Eosinophilic Esophagitis Cohort. Conclusions We developed and validated two highly accurate coding algorithms for O and established a nationwide VHA cohort of adults with O for future studies. Epidemiologic Burden and Projections for Eosinophilic Esophagitis Associated Emergency Department Visits in the United States, 2009-2030 Background and Names Patients with poorly controlled eosinophilic esophagitis, O, may require unplanned emergency department, ED, visits for the management of dysphagia or food impactions. We evaluated the epidemiologic burden of O on ED utilization in the United States. Methods Data from the U.S. Nationwide Emergency Department sample were used to estimate weighted annual O-associated ED visits from 2009 to 2019. Temporal trends and population-adjusted rates of O-visits were assessed using joint-point regression. Autoregressive integrated moving average models were used to project O-associated ED visits to 2030. We also evaluated endoscopic utilization, requirement for hospitalization, and ED-related charges in patients with O-presenting to the ED. Results. A total of 11,125 unweighted, 49,507 weighted, ED visits for O were included, 69.0% male, mean age, 32.4 years. The annual volume of O-associated ED visits increased from 2,934, 95% C, 2,437 to 3,431, in 2009 to 8,765, 95% C, 7,514 to 10,015, in 2019, and is projected to reach 15,445, 95% prediction interval, 14,672 to 16,218, by 2030. From 2009 to 2019, the number of O-associated ED visits increased by an average of 11.5% per year, 95% C, 10.3% to 12.7%. The proportion of patients admitted to the hospital from the ED decreased from 25.6% in 2009 to 2011 to 14.0% in 2017 to 2019. Half of O patients presenting to the ED required an endoscopy, and nearly 40% required an esophageal foreign body removal. Total mean inflation-adjusted charges for an O-associated ED visit were $9,025 U.S. dollars in 2019. Conclusions the volume of O-associated at visits tripled between 2009 and 2019 and is projected to further double by 2030. This represents a substantial burden of unanticipated healthcare resource utilization and highlights a potential opportunity to optimize outpatient O-care. Next article from Journal of Infectious Diseases. BK Polyomavirus Diversity After Hematopoietic Stem Cell Transplantation BK Polyomavirus, BRUFF, infection is common after hematopoietic stem cell transplantation, HSCT, 
and is associated with the development of hemorrhagic cystitis, HC. The role that Brooks plays in the pathogenesis of HC is not well characterized. We investigated the impact of Brooks diversity on the development of HC using a previously established cohort of pediatric HSCT patients. There were 147 urine samples with quantifiable Brooks at month 1 after HSCT, 137, 93.2%, were amplified using our in-house polymerase chain reaction approach and sent for next-generation sequencing. Subtype YA was most frequent, 61.3%, followed by subtype IP1, 31.4%. The median viral load of subtype YA samples was higher than for subtype IP1 at month 1. Across the protein coding regions, APABEC-induced mutations and signature patterns associated with HC were identified. This is the largest sequencing study of a single cohort of HSCT patients, providing a vast resource of sequence data for future analyzes. Next article from Journal of Clinical Rheumatology. Development of American College of Rheumatology Quality Measures for Systemic Lupus Erythematosus a modified Delphi process with Rheumatology Informatics System for Effectiveness, RISE, Registry Data Review. Objective. We aim to develop readily measurable digital quality measure statements for clinical care in systemic lupus erythematosus, SLE, using a multi-step process guided by consensus methods. Methods. Using a modified Delphi process, an American College of Rheumatology, ACR, Workgroup of SLE experts reviewed all North American and European guidelines from 2000 to 2020 on treatment, monitoring, and phenotyping of patients with lupus. Workgroup members extracted quality constructs from guidelines, rated these by importance and feasibility, and generated evidence-based quality measure statements. The ACR Rheumatology Informatics System for Effectiveness, RISE, registry was queried for measurement data availability. In three consecutive Delphi sessions, a multidisciplinary Delphi panel voted on the importance and feasibility of each statement. Proposed measures with consensus on feasibility and importance were ranked to identify the top three measures. Results Review of guidelines and distillation of 57 quality constructs resulted in 15 quality measure statements. Among these, five met high consensus for importance and feasibility, including two on treatment and three on laboratory monitoring measures. The three highest-ranked statements were recommended for further measure specification as SLE digital quality measures, 1. Hydroxychloroquine use, 2. Limiting glucocorticoid use greater than 7.5 mg data less than 6 months, and 3. And organ monitoring of kidney function and urine protein excretion at least every 6 months. Conclusion The Delphi process selected three quality measures for SLE care on hydroxychloroquine, glucocorticoid reduction, and kidney monitoring. Next, measures will undergo specification and validity testing and rise in U.S. rheumatology practices as the foundation for national implementation and use in quality improvement programs. Examination of the increased risk for falls among individuals with knee osteoarthritis, a Canadian longitudinal study on aging population-based study. Objective. To characterize the profile of individuals with and without knee osteoarthritis, OA, who fell, 
and to identify factors contributing to an individual with knee OA experiencing one or multiple injurious falls. Methods Data are from the baseline and three-year follow-up questionnaires of the Canadian Longitudinal Study on Aging, a population-based study of people ages 45 to 85 years at baseline. Analyzes were limited to individuals either reporting knee OA or no arthritis at baseline, and equals 21,710. Differences between falling patterns among those with and without knee OA were tested using chi-square tests and multivariable adjusted logistic regression models. An ordinal logistic regression model examined predictors of experiencing one or more injurious falls among individuals with knee OA. Results Among individuals reporting knee OA, 10% reported one or more injurious falls, 6% reported one fall, and 4% reported two plus falls. Having knee OA significantly contributed to the risk of falling, odds ratio or 1.33, 95% confidence interval, 95% C, 1.14 to 1.56, and individuals with knee OA were more likely to report having a fall indoors while standing or walking. Among individuals with knee OA, reporting a previous fall or 1.75, 95% C 1.22 to 2.52, previous fracture, or 1.42, 95% C 1.12 to 1.80, and having urinary incontinence, or 1.38, 95% C 1.01 to 1.88, were significant predictors of falling. Conclusion Our findings support the idea that knee OA is an independent risk factor for falls. The circumstances in which falls occur differ from those for individuals without knee OA. The risk factors and environments that are associated with falling may provide opportunities for clinical intervention and fall prevention strategies. Next article from Arthritis and Rheumatology. Baricitinib improves bone properties and biomechanics in patients with rheumatoid arthritis, results of the prospective interventional bare bone trial. Objective. Rheumatoid arthritis, RA, is characterized by erosive joint damage, deterioration of bone mass, and biomechanics. Preclinical evidence suggests a beneficial effect of Janus kinase inhibition, Yaki, on bone properties, but clinical data are scarce to date. In this study, we evaluated the effect of Yaki through baricitinib, BARI, on 1, volumetric bone mineral density, VBMD, bone microstructure, biomechanics, and erosion repair and 2, synovial inflammation in RA patients. Methods Prospective, single-arm, interventional, open-label, single-center phase 4 study in RA patients with pathological bone status and clinical indication of Yaki, bare bone trial. Participants received BARI, 4 mg slash day, over 52 weeks. To assess bone properties and synovial inflammation, High-resolution computed tomography scans and magnetic resonance imaging were performed at baseline, BL, week 24, and week 52. Clinical response and safety were monitored. Results 30 RA patients were included. Bari significantly improved disease activity, disease activity score in 28 joints using the erythrocyte sedimentation rate. 4.82 plus or minus 0.90 to 2.71 plus or minus 0.83, and synovial inflammation, RAMRIS synovitis score, 5.3, 4.2 to 2.7, 3.5.
We observed a significant improvement in trabecular VBMD with a mean change of 6.11 M3, 95% confidence interval, 95% C, 0.01 to 12.26. Biomechanical properties also improved with mean change from baseline in estimated stiffness of 2.28 kN-M, 95% C 0.30 to 4.25, and estimated failure load of 98.8 N, 95% C 15.9 to 181.7. The number and size of erosions in the metacarpal joints remained stable. No new safety signals with BARI treatment were observed. Conclusion Bones of RA patients improve with BARI therapy, as shown by an increase in trabecular bone mass and an improvement of biomechanical properties. Comparative risks of infection with belimumab versus oral immunosuppressants in patients with non-renal systemic lupus erythematosus. Objective We investigated the comparative risk of infection with belimumab versus oral immunosuppressants for the treatment of systemic lupus erythematosus, SLE. Methods Using observational data from a U.S. multi-center electronic health record database, we identified patients with SLE but without lupus nephritis who initiated belimumab, azathioprine, methotrexate, or mycophenolate between 2011 and 2021. We designed and emulated hypothetical target trials to estimate the cumulative incidence and hazard ratios, HRs, of serious infection and hospitalization for serious infection comparing belimumab versus each oral immunosuppressant. We used propensity score overlap weighting to balance baseline covariates and adjusted for adherence to treatment group using inverse probability of treatment weighting. We also assessed the control outcome of traumatic injury. Results Among 21,481 patients, we compared 2,841 and 6,343 initiators of belimumab and azathioprine, 2,642 and 8,242 initiators of belimumab and methotrexate, and 2,813 and 8,407 initiators of belimumab and mycophenolate, respectively. After propensity score overlap weighting, all covariates were balanced in each comparison. The mean age of the cohort was 45 years, and 94% were women. Compared with azathioprine and mycophenolate, belimumab was associated with lower risks of both serious infection, HR 0.82, 95% confidence interval, C, 0.72-0.92 and HR 0.69, 95% C 0.61-0.78, and hospitalization for infection, HR 0.73, 95% C 0.57-0.94 and HR 0.5695% C 0.43-0.71. The risk of infection was also lower for belimumab compared with methotrexate, HR 0.86, 95% C 0.76-0.97. There were no differences in traumatic injury risks across treatment groups. Conclusion Belimumab was associated with lower risks of serious infection than with oral immunosuppressants. This finding should inform risk-slash-benefit considerations for SLE treatment. Next article from Circulation October 24, 2023 
Graft failure after coronary artery bypass grafting and its association with patient characteristics and clinical events, a pooled individual patient data analysis of clinical trials with imaging follow-up. Graft patency is the postulated mechanism for the benefits of coronary artery bypass grafting, CABG. However, systematic graft imaging assessment after CABG is rare, and there is a lack of contemporary data on the factors associated with graft failure and on the association between graft failure and clinical events after CABG. Methods We pooled individual patient data from randomized clinical trials with systematic CABG graft imaging to assess the incidence of graft failure and its association with clinical risk factors. The primary outcome was the composite of myocardial infarction or repeat revascularization occurring after CABG and before imaging. A two-stage meta-analytic approach was used to evaluate the association between graft failure and the primary outcome. We also assessed the association between graft failure and myocardial infarction, repeat revascularization, or all-cause death occurring after imaging. Results Seven trials were included comprising 4,413 patients, mean age, 64.4 plus or minus 9.1 years, 777, 17.6%, 17.6%, women, 3,636, 82.4%, men, and 13,163 grafts, 8,740 sapinous vein grafts and 4,423 arterial grafts. The median time to imaging was 1.02 years, in Turk-Wartal range, IQR, 1.00 to 1.03. Graft failure occurred in 1487, 33.7%, patients and in 2,190, 16.6%, grafts. Age-adjusted odds ratio, AOR, 1.08, per 10-year increment 95% C, 1.01 to 1.15, P equals 0.03, female sex, AOR, 1.27, 95% C, 1.08 to 1.50, P equals 0.004 and smoking, AOR, 1.20, 95% C, 1.04 to 1.38, P equals 0.01, were independently associated with graft failure, whereas statins were associated with a protective effect, AOR, 0.74, 95% C, 0.63 to 0.88, P less than 0.001. Graft failure was associated with an increased risk of myocardial infarction or repeat revascularization occurring between CABG and imaging assessment, 8.0% in patients with graft failure versus 1.7% in patients without graft failure, AOR, 3.98, 95% C, 3.54 to 4.47, P less than 0.001. Graft failure was also associated with an increased risk of myocardial infarction or repeat revascularization occurring after imaging, 7.8% versus 2.0%, AOR, 2.59, 95% C, 1.86 to 3.62, P less than 0.001. All-cause death after imaging occurred more frequently in patients with graft failure compared with patients without graft failure, 11.0% versus 2.1%, AOR, 2.79, 95% C, 2.01 to 3.89, P less than 0.001. Conclusions In contemporary practice, Graft failure remains common among patients undergoing CABG and is strongly associated with adverse cardiac events.
Next article from American College of Cardiology Impact of Residual Inflammatory Risk in Patients Receiving Statin Therapy Atherosclerotic Cardiovascular Disease, ASCADE, remains the leading cause of mortality worldwide despite tremendous advancements in diagnostic and therapeutic modalities. The pathophysiological mechanisms behind atherosclerosis are complex, with vascular inflammation playing a key role in its initiation, progression, and clinical manifestations. One, although the benefits of achieving low low density lipoprotein cholesterol, LDLC, values as a fundamental approach in treating ASCADE are unequivocal, the role of adjuvant strategies targeting residual inflammatory risk compared with further lowering of cholesterol levels has remained a topic of particular interest. To address this question, Ritker et al. performed a collaborative analysis of three contemporary randomized trials that included patients with or at high risk of ASCAE2, prominent, pemifibrate to reduce cardiovascular outcomes by reducing triglycerides in patients with diabetes, reduce IT, reduction of cardiovascular events with icosapent ethyl intervention trial, and strength, long-term outcome study to assess statin residual risk with Epinova in high cardiovascular risk patients with hypertriglyceridemia. A total of 31,245 patients of predominantly white ethnicity with mean age 64 years, 31% of whom were women, were evaluated. A high proportion of participants had concomitant type 2 diabetes mellitus and obesity. Notably, most participants had a skate and almost 100% were taking a statin. The median baseline LDLC value was approximately 75 mg DL and high sensitivity C reactive protein, HSCRP, value was approximately 2.2 mg L. The baseline level of HSCRP was significantly associated with incident major adverse cardiovascular, CV, events, CV mortality, and all cause mortality. In contrast, the relationship of residual cholesterol risk was neutral for major adverse CV events and of low magnitude for CV death and all cause death. These results indicate that knowledge of residual inflammatory risk is crucial beyond foundational statin therapy in treating people with ASCADE. Furthermore, among patients with improved LDLC levels with statins, further lowering of cholesterol levels may be associated with only modest gains. Ultimately, it is important to remember that this is not a competition between cholesterol and inflammation, both of these are dominant risk factors, and the best outcomes are likely going to be achieved by dual-targeting complementary approaches. The best way to reduce inflammation remains weight loss, increased brisk daily exercise, and better glycemic control. International Study of Comparative Health Effectiveness with Medical and Invasive Approaches, Ischemia The ischemia trial failed to show that routine invasive therapy was associated with a reduction in major adverse ischemic events compared with optimal medical therapy among stable patients with moderate ischemia. Interpretation Among patients with stable ischemic heart disease and moderate to severe ischemia on non-invasive stress testing, Routine invasive therapy failed to reduce major adverse cardiac events compared with optimal medical therapy. There was possible enhanced benefit for invasive compared with conservative therapy among those with heart failure slash left ventricular dysfunction. There was also no benefit from invasive therapy regarding all-cause mortality or cardiovascular mortality slash myocardial infarction. One-third of subjects reported no angina symptoms at baseline. 
There was a modest improvement in symptom benefit at three months, especially among those with daily-slash-weekly angina, which persisted to 12 and 36 months. Routine invasive therapy was associated with harm at six months, increase in paraprocedural myocardial infarctions, and associated with benefit at four years, reduction in spontaneous myocardial infarction. Procedural myocardial infarctions were not associated with an increase in all-cause or cardiovascular mortality, while spontaneous myocardial infarctions were associated with an increase in all-cause or cardiovascular mortality. These results do not apply to patients with current-slash-recent acute coronary syndrome, highly symptomatic patients, left main stenosis, or left ventricular ejection fraction less than 35%. Severe ischemia on stress testing was associated with myocardial infarction, while severe extent of coronary disease, modified Duke prognostic score, was associated with both mortality and myocardial infarction. However, the overall lack of benefit for invasive versus conservative therapy was similar among those with severe ischemia on non-invasive testing and extensive coronary disease. During extended follow-up, all-cause mortality was similar between treatment groups. However, invasive therapy was associated with a reduction in cardiovascular mortality that was offset by an increase in non-cardiovascular mortality. Older adults had improvement in angina frequency but less improvement in angina-related health status. Although the overall interpretation of this trial was negative, there were mixed findings with evidence for both harm and benefit. This signals that, 1. Invasive therapy for stable ischemic heart disease patients needs to be carefully considered in the context of angina burden and background medical therapy, and 2. Likelihood that optimal coronary revascularization can be achieved with low procedural complications. Next article from Journal of Clinical Endocrinology and Metabolism. Age but not menopausal status is linked to lower resting energy expenditure. Context It remains uncertain whether aging before late adulthood and menopause are associated with fat-free mass and fat mass-adjusted resting energy expenditure, REEH. Objectives We investigated whether REEH differs between middle-aged and younger women and between middle-aged women with different menopausal statuses. We repeated the age group comparison between middle-aged mothers and their daughters to partially control for genotype. We also explored whether serum estradiol and FSH concentrations explain REEH in midlife. Methods We divided 120 women, including 16 mother-daughter pairs, into age groups. Group I, N equals 26, consisted of participants aged 17 to 21. Group 2, N equals 35 of those aged 22 to 38, and group 3, N equals 59, of those aged 41 to 58 years. The women in group 3 were further categorized as pre- or perimenopausal, N equals 19, postmenopausal, N equals 30, or postmenopausal hormone therapy users, N equals 10. RE was assessed using indirect calorimetry, body composition using dual energy X-ray absorptiometry, and hormones using immunoassays. Results the REEH of group I was 126 kilocalories slash day, 95% confidence interval, C, 93 to 160, higher than that of group 3, and the REEH of group 2 was 88 kilocalories slash day, 95% C, 49 to 127, higher. Furthermore, daughters had a 100 kilocalories slash day, 
95% C, 63 to 138 kilocalories slash day, higher REH than their middle-aged mothers, all P less than 0.001. In group 3, REH was not lower in postmenopausal women, and did not vary by sex hormone concentrations. Conclusions We demonstrated that REH declines with age in women before late adulthood, also when controlling partially for genetic background, and that menopause may not contribute to this decline. Next article from Neurology, Movement Disorders in Patients with Genetic Developmental and Epileptic Encephalopathies. Background and Objectives Movement Disorders, MDs, are underrecognized in the developmental and epileptic encephalopathies, Ds. There are now more than 800 genes implicated in causing the Ds. Relatively few of these rare genetic diseases are known to be associated with MDs. We identified patients with genetic Ds who had MDs, classified the nature of their MDs, and asked whether specific patterns correlated with the underlying mechanism. Methods we classified the type of MDs associated with specific genetic Ds in a large international cohort of patients and analyzed whether specific patterns of MDs reflected the underlying biological dysfunction. Results our cohort comprised 77 patients with a genetic D with a median age of 9, range 1 to 38, years. Stereotypes, 3777, 48%, and dystonia, 3477, 44%, were the most frequent MDs, followed by Korea, 1877, 23%, Myoclonus, 1477, 18%, Ataxia, 977, 12%, Tremor, 777, 9%, and Hypokinesia, 677, 8%. In 47% of patients, a combination of MDs was seen. The MDs were first observed at a median age of 18 months, range day 2 to 35 years. Dystonia was more likely to be observed in nonambulatory patients, while ataxia was less likely. In 46% of patients, therapy was initiated with medication, 3477, 44%, deep brain stimulation, 177, 1%, or intrathecal baclofen, 177, 1%. We found that patients with channelopathies or synaptic vesicle trafficking defects were more likely to experience dystonia, whereas, Stereotypes were most frequent in individuals with transcriptional defects. Discussion MDs are often underrecognized in patients with genetic Ds, but recognition is critical for the management of these complex neurologic diseases. Distinguishing MDs from epileptic seizures is important in tailoring patient treatment. Understanding which MDs occur with different biological mechanisms will inform early diagnosis and management. Next article from CHEST. Clinic versus home spirometry for monitoring lung function in patients with asthma. Background. Studies examining agreement between home and clinic spirometry in patients with asthma are limited, with conflicting results. Understanding the strengths and limitations of telehealth and home spirometry is particularly important considering the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic. Research question. How well do home and clinic measurements of TROF-FEV1 agree in patients with uncontrolled asthma? Study Design and Methods This post-hoc analysis used TROF-FEV1 data from the randomized double-anonymized parallel group phase 3A-CAPTAIN, 
205,715, NCT 02924688, and Phase 2B 205,832, NCT 03012061, Captain evaluated the impact of adding eumeclidinium to fluticasone furoate slash bilanterol via a single inhaler. The 205,832 trial investigated adding eumeclidinium to fluticasone furoate versus placebo. Trough-FEV1 measurements were collected via home spirometry and supervised in-person spirometry in the research clinic. To compare home and clinic spirometry, we examined the time course analyses of home and clinic trough FEV1 and generated post hoc bland Altman plots to assess agreement between home and clinic spirometry. Results Data from 2,436 patients, Captain trial, and 421 patients, 205,832 trial, were analyzed. Treatment related improvements in FEV1 were observed in both trials, using home and clinic spirometry. Improvements measured by home spirometry were of lower magnitude and less consistent than clinic measurements. Bland Altman plots suggested poor agreement between home and clinic trough FEV1 at baseline and week 24. Interpretation This post hoc comparison of home and clinic spirometry is the largest conducted in asthma. Results showed that home spirometry was less consistent than and lacked agreement with clinic spirometry suggesting that unsupervised home readings are not interchangeable with clinic measurements. However, these findings may only be applicable to home spirometry using the specific device and coaching methods employed in these studies. Post-pandemic, further research to optimize home spirometry use is needed. Next article from CHEST Clinic versus home spirometry for monitoring lung function in patients with asthma. Background Studies examining agreement between home and clinic spirometry in patients with asthma are limited, with conflicting results. Understanding the strengths and limitations of telehealth and home spirometry is particularly important considering the SARS CoV 2 pandemic. Research question How well do home and clinic measurements of trough FEV1 agree in patients with uncontrolled asthma? Study Design and Methods This post hoc analysis used trough FEV1 data from the randomized double anonymized parallel group phase 3A captain, 205,715, NCT 02924688, and phase 2B 205,832, NCT 03012061, trials in patients with uncontrolled asthma. Captain evaluated the impact of adding eumeclidinium to fluticasone furoate slash bilanterol via a single inhaler. The 205,832 trial investigated adding eumeclidinium to fluticasone furoate versus placebo. Trough FEV1 measurements were collected via home spirometry and supervised in-person spirometry in the research clinic. To compare home and clinic spirometry, we examined the time course analyses of home and clinic trough FEV1 and generated post hoc bland Altman plots to assess agreement between home and clinic spirometry. Results Data from 2,436 patients, Captain trial, and 421 patients, 205,832 trial, were analyzed. Treatment related improvements in FEV1 were observed in both trials, using home and clinic spirometry. Improvements measured by home spirometry were of lower magnitude and less consistent than clinic measurements. 
Blanda Altman plot suggested poor agreement between home and clinic trough FEV1 at baseline and week 24. Interpretation This post hoc comparison of home and clinic spirometry is the largest conducted in asthma. Results showed that home spirometry was less consistent than and lacked agreement with clinic spirometry, suggesting that unsupervised home readings are not interchangeable with clinic measurements. However, these findings may only be applicable to home spirometry using the specific device and coaching methods employed in these studies. Post-pandemic, further research to optimize home spirometry uses Next article from the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. Inflammatory activity of epithelial stem cell variants from cystic fibrosis lungs is not resolved by CFTR modulators. Objectives, to determine whether CF lungs, like chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, COPD, lungs, harbor potentially pathogenic stem cell variants distinct from the normal p 63 krt 5 lung stem cells devoted to alveolar fates, to identify specific variants that might contribute to the inflammatory state of CF lungs, and to assess the impact of CFTR genetic complementation or CFTR modulators on the inflammatory variants identified herein. Methods, stem cell cloning technology developed to resolve pathogenic stem cell heterogeneity in COPD and idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis lungs was applied to end-stage lungs of patients with CF, 3 homozygous CFTR F508D, 1 CFTR F508D-L1254X, FEV1, 14-30%, undergoing therapeutic lung transplantation. Single-cell-derived clones corresponding to the six stem cell clusters resolved by single-cell RNA sequencing of these libraries were assessed by RNA sequencing and xenografting to monitor inflammation, fibrosis, and mucin secretion. The impact of CFTR activity on these variants after CFTR gene complementation or exposure to CFTR modulators was assessed by molecular and functional studies. Measurements and main results, end-stage CF lungs display a stem cell heterogeneity marked by five predominant variants in addition to the normal lung stem cell, of which three are pro-inflammatory both at the level of gene expression and their ability to drive neutrophilic inflammation and xenografts in immunodeficient mice. The pro-inflammatory functions of these three variants were unallayed by genetic or pharmacological restoration of CFTR activity. Conclusions The emergence of three pro-inflammatory stem cell variants in CF lungs may contribute to the persistence of lung inflammation in patients with CF with advanced disease undergoing CFTR modulator therapy. Next article is from Clinical Journal of American Society of Nephrology. Outcomes of Hospital-Acquired Hypernatremia Background Hospital-acquired hypernatremia is highly prevalent, overlooked, and associated with unfavorable consequences. There are limited studies examining the outcomes and discharge dispositions of various levels of hospital-acquired hypernatremia in patients with or without CKD. Methods We conducted an observational retrospective cohort study, and we analyzed the data of 1,728,141 patients extracted from the Cerner Health Facts Database, January 1, 2000, to June 30, 2018. In this report, we investigated the association between hospital-acquired hypernatremia, serum sodium, 
nah, levels greater than 145 MEQ slash L, and in hospital mortality or discharge dispositions with kidney function status at admission using adjusted multinomial regression models. Results Of all hospitalized patients, 6% developed hypernatremia after hospital admission. The incidence of in-hospital mortality was 12% and 1% in patients with hypernatremia and normonatremia, respectively. The risk of all outcomes was significantly greater for serum not greater than 145 MEQ slash L compared with the reference interval, serum NA, 135 to 145 MEQ slash L. In patients with hypernatremia, odds ratios, 95% confidence interval, for an in-hospital mortality, discharge to hospice, and discharge to nursing facilities were 14.04, 13.71 to 14.38, 4.35, 4.14-4.57, and 3.88, 3.82-3.94, 3 respectively, p less than 0.001, for all. Patients with EGFR, chronic kidney disease epidemiology collaboration, 60-89 to 89 milliliters per minute per 1.73 square meters and normonatremia had the lowest odds ratio for in-hospital mortality, 1.60, 1.52 to 1.70. Conclusions Hospital-acquired hypernatremia is associated with in-hospital mortality and discharge to hospice or to nursing facilities in all stages of CKD. Fixed-dose combination therapy for the prevention of cardiovascular diseases in CKD an individual participant data meta-analysis. Background Fixed-dose combination treatments reduce cardiovascular disease in primary prevention. We aim to explore whether those benefits differ in the presence of CKD. Methods We conducted an individual participant data meta-analysis in 18,162 participants on the efficacy and safety of treatment for the primary prevention of cardiovascular disease. Combination therapies consisted of at least two BP-lowering drugs and a statin, with or without aspirin versus placebo or minimal care. Here, we examine the differential effect of fixed-dose combination treatment on the risk of developing cardiovascular disease in participants with a low EGFR, less than 60 milliliters per minute per 1.73 square meters, chronic kidney disease epidemiology collaboration formula, compared with a normal EGFR, greater than or equal to 60 ml per minute per 1.73 square meters. The primary composite outcome was time to first occurrence of a combination of cardiovascular death, myocardial infarction, stroke, or arterial revascularization. Results At baseline, the mean level of EGFR was 76 milliliters per minute per 1.73 square meters, SD17. In total, 3,315, 18%, Participants had low EGFR at baseline. During a median follow-up of five years, among participants with normal EGFR, the primary outcome occurred in 232, 3%, participants in the treatment group compared with 339, 5%, in the control group, hazard ratio, 0.68, 95% confidence interval, 0.57 to 0.81, p less than 0.001. In participants with low EGFR, the primary outcome occurred in 64, 4%, participants in the treatment group compared with 130, 8%, in the control group, 
Hazard ratio 0.49, 95% confidence interval, 0.36 to 0.66, P less than 0.001, P for interaction 0.047. The relative risk reduction among participants with low EFR was larger for combination strategies, including aspirin compared with treatments without aspirin. Apart from dizziness, other side effects did not differ between treatment and control groups, regardless of the stage of their kidney function. Conclusions A fixed-dose combination treatment strategy is effective and safe at preventing cardiovascular disease, irrespective of EFR, but relative and absolute risk reductions are larger in individuals with low EFR. Next article is from Kidney International Reports. Supporting Patient-Centered Pregnancy Counseling and Nephrology Care, a Semi-Structured Interview Study of Patients and Nephrologists. Introduction Individuals with chronic kidney disease, CKD, are at increased risk of adverse pregnancy outcomes and are susceptible to disempowerment and decisional burden when receiving reproductive counseling and considering pregnancy. Nephrologists do not frequently counsel about reproductive health, and no tools exist to support patient-centered reproductive counseling for those with CKD. Methods A total of 30 patients aged 18 to 45 years with CKD stages 1 to 5 who were assigned female sex at birth and 12 nephrologists from a single academic medical center participated in semi-structured qualitative interviews. They were asked about information needs, decision support needs, and facilitators and barriers to reproductive health care and counseling. Thematic analysis was performed. Results The following four main themes were identified. I. Assessing reproductive intentions. 2. Information about reproductive health and kidney disease. 3. Reproductive risk. And 4. Communication and decision-making needs. Patients' reproductive intentions varied over time and shaped the content of information needed from nephrologists. Patients and nephrologists both felt that risk communication could be improved but focused on different aspects to improve the quality of this counseling. Nephrologists focused on providing individualized risk estimates and patients focused on balancing risks with benefits and management. Patients desired nephrologists to bring up the topic of reproductive health and counseling in kidney clinic, and this is not frequently or systematically done currently. Conclusion This work highlights a critical need for more dialogue about reproductive health and kidney care, identify differences in what patients and nephrologists think is important in communication and decision-making, and provides an important step in developing patient-centered reproductive counseling tools in nephrology. Thank you for listening to This Week in Medicine, your filtered medical journal summary. Have a great week ahead, stay blessed and be humane.